Hello and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change, where we explore the ideas that are forming our future reality. My name is Dr. Rosalind Savage. After an environmental epiphany 20 years ago, I left a corporate career to row solo across three oceans, using my adventures to raise environmental awareness. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with how we create a better world. On this show, I talk with scientists, philosophers, economists, and activists about how we create a thriving world for people and planet. The interesting place that we are finding ourselves is in transition. And transitions are these kind of liminal spaces where kind of the rules are not clear, anything can happen. We are still in many ways anchored and dependent on the old world. At the same time, we are starting to create this new world. So um, social technologies like sociocracy, agile, open space are to me definitely the, the ways to go. Following on from my conversation with Ted Rao a few weeks ago, when I promised you more on sociocracy, I'm delighted to introduce you to the work of John Buck and Monica Magyeshi from Governance Alive. John and his partners have introduced hundreds of businesses to the power of sociocracy, bringing new levels of efficiency, engagement, connectedness and satisfaction. An expert in the synthesis of social technologies like Beyond Budgeting, Open Space, Sociocracy and Agile, John has co-authored books such as We the People, Consenting to a Deeper Democracy, and company-wide agility with Beyond Budgeting, Open Space and Sociocracy. Monica Magyeshi started out studying human anatomy and training as a nurse. She was struck by the ability of human bodies to heal themselves and saw how self-healing functions could be brought to the human system surrounding her. She has a business degree from the University of Maryland. She co-founded the Entrepreneurial Partnership of Greater Washington and has a Master's in Negotiations and Conflict Management at the University of Baltimore. Her motto and driving inspiration is summed up in the words, Awaken to life, you matter, you belong. In this conversation, we talk about sociocracy, structures, feedback loops, vulnerability, conversations in rounds, consent and consensus, embodied decision-making, eyeballs, yin and yang, circles and lines, and something that was a very alien concept to me in my corporate career, meetings that people look forward to. John and Monica, um, welcome to this conversation. Such a pleasure to meet you and thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing in this emerging and fast-growing realm of sociocracy. I'd like to maybe turn to John first and find out more about the origin story here. You and sociocracy, how did that all come about? Well, there, that's two different stories. I can give the, like the long historical thing fairly quickly, perhaps. The, the term sociocracy was invented by uh, the philosopher Auguste Comte around 1850. And he was trying to express the idea that you, you rule by people who know each other. So socios and rule by the socios, people who are partners, if you're speaking Spanish. 
And in democracy, you have rule by the demos, which is just the Greek word for general mass of people that may or may not know each other, probably don't. So you can think of sociocracy in some sense as being like a subset, a special subset of democracy. It's the demos who are socio, socio to each other. And he is the, was the founder of really modern science, scientific theory. And he said, gee, the, the people who know each other should be ruling. And it was picked up in around 1890 by um, a man named Frank Ward, who was the founder of the American Sociological Society in the U.S., and he was saying we ought to be ruled by sociologists, which kind of like, okay, but that's not what I'm for. I don't think we want them. That was picked up then by a man named in Holland named Case Buka, who was a Quaker who uh, actually literally he was well enough known. He tried to stop World War I before it started and they finally kicked him out of Germany so they could go fight. Um, and he knew about sociocracy and said, we're going to try that. And, and in fact, he... Uh, founded a school while World War II was going on for children uh, who uh, were like, like orphaned and you know couldn't couldn't uh, you know, lost their families, and he started something called the Children's Workshop. That he was trying out his sociocracy ideas. How do we how do we have the children also run the school? And uh, in around 1948. There was um, uh, a man named Case Buka who joined that school, and it became very well known. Even the Dutch royalty went to the school, and uh, they um, uh, were uh, very much involved in the children building furniture because they didn't have anything hardly after World War II and all that. So it was the children's workshop. One of his uh, or uh, Gerard was a, uh, ended up being a um, electronics engineer. He, he uh, was like worked at Philips for a while. Was responsible for the flat speaker in your telephone, your mobile phone, and uh, so quite bright. And his parents, it seemed, were very imaginative people who uh, had been socialists before World War II. And then when World War II was over and socialism was sweeping Europe, they said, "No, that's not what we were talking about." And they said, "We're going to become capitalists, and so we're going to start our own company that we can use as a living management laboratory." And uh, so they, uh, and that company, Andenberg Electrotechnique, uh, is still in existence today, 60, 70 years later. They do heavy electrical engineering, wire up dams or air traffic control centers or big buildings. And uh, when his parents were ready to retire, they, they, they got hold of Gerard and said, hey, um, why don't you come take over our experiment? And he said he agreed to do that. And he said that when he just took over, the first thing he did was look at the power structure of his company. Uh, and he looked at it and he said, you know, it was a typical top-down thing with the board and, and the, the CEOs and so forth. And uh, he said, uh, as an electrical engineer, I would never design a power circuit that way. It's a, basically a bad design of power. It has no feedback loop. We need to create an, a power structure that contains a real feedback loop. Like if you think of the, uh, the um, thermostat on the wall in your home, uh, if the, uh, it gets too cold, then the, the feedback loop, which is a mechanical device, uh, turns on and, and, and turns the, the furnace on. So the feedback can't be escaped. In any typical company, 
you can escape the feedback. You can be a nice participative manager that says, oh, I will listen to your opinion and yours. And then, of course, you turn around and make whatever decision you want because you're only getting input. You're not getting feedback. So Gerard then built this whole principle of sociocracy on based on something called cybernetics, which is the science that grew up after World War II, the science of uh, steering and communication. And so you'll find lots of um, engineering concepts embedded in, in the way we teach sociocracy. Then, uh, meanwhile, I was uh, when I got out of college, I uh, became a, 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 a technical a technical writer uh, at the Boeing Corporation in Seattle. It's a very nice job. I had, you know, it was interesting work. I liked the people I was with. But it occurred to me that, oh, my goodness, I thought I was living in a democracy all these years growing up in school and all that. But I'm not. The I can vote for the mayor of Seattle, but I can't vote for my own boss. I would vote for my boss if I could, but I can't vote for my boss. How come? Uh, I would like to be able to do that. I would like to work in a democratic company, I said to myself. Um, and so I started looking for such a thing. I um, Continued my career working for the Federal Aviation Administration, big bureaucracy, became an expert in computer-based training, got lots and lots of management experience or, or and management training at the FAA, and um, uh, was like still never could find a place I could work where I was be able to vote for my boss. So I was over in Holland uh, in the late 80s uh, to give a speech on computer-based training. And uh, the people who were hosting me and I were having a nice dinner one night, and I complained to them. I said, I can't find a company to work for where I can, uh, that's democratic. And they said, ah, the problem's been solved. Go see Gerard Endenberg, which is what I did. And it took me no more than 15 minutes to realize he had something really genuinely new. And uh, so I, I kept I made several trips back to Holland. I um, had to learn some Dutch in order to translate the, the materials because uh, there was no Google translators then. And um, so I went on, I did a, a master's thesis in which I studied Dutch companies that were using sociocracy and was able to provide you know, solid data that, that um, the level of organizational commitment in the, uh, of a worker in a Dutch sociocratic organization was statistically significantly higher than the average uh, Dutch worker commitment to the organization they were working in. So I said, okay, fine, I have that. Uh, went on and wrote a book called Governance, uh, uh, We the People um, um, Consenting to a Deeper Democracy. And then uh, uh, hopped out of my, my job at the, 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 I was working at that time as a, on a contract for the, the State Department. And I was having a good time and said my passion is in, in uh uh, bringing sociocracy to people. So hopped out very shortly after that, met Monica, and um, that was that's how I got here. Because Monica, you also have had quite an interesting journey in sociocracy, quite a, a checkered career so far. Can you give me a little bit of your background and why sociocracy is, why do you care about it so much? Absolutely. As... Um... As John mentioned, the legacy that sociocracy carries forward was built by revolutionaries, scientists, Quakers, um, peacemakers. And I happened to be born in a um, quite oppressive dictatorship in Romania as, as an ethnic minority. 
So I had experienced the uh, jaws and claws of oppressive regimes without knowing because of that experience, my journey has become about finding, building structures that can be steered by the voices from within. And as I have made my way across the globe, from Romania to Hungary to United States, I and I got my master's in, in conflict management, I became a mediator, I realized that I was very well equipped to handle conflicts in processes. But when it came to conflict that was inherent, built into the structures, there were less tools available. That's when I came across John. And just like him, I had that, yes, I, I recognize this is something tangible and practical that gives me influence not only in processes, but also in how we structure ourselves as humans. I'm really fascinated by structural change because it does seem like so many of our current challenges arise out of the structures. And so the structures need to change to address these issues of the 21st century. But it's quite challenging as well because it requires people to change as well, doesn't it? And I wonder, um, Monica, if we continue with you for a moment, how do you help people to engage in these, what would still seem to many very radically new and different ways from, you know, really from the moment that we enter school or maybe even earlier than that in our families, we're brought up in a society where it's command and control, where your parents say, um, do it because I told you to. So how do you even begin to retrain people to be real participants in governance? Absolutely. That's that's a very salient question. We have been conditioned in power over structures and our behaviors have to be playing it safe in order to in order to survive in these structures and, and to be safe. What sociocracy brings in is a power with environment. And power with environment can be only maintained when you participate with authentic truth. And to do that, you need to be vulnerable. So John and I have been working so hardly, so much on what we call embodied sociocracy, where we are not only creating spaces and containers that are safe enough to be our authentic truth, our authentic selves, but also to, to have the courage to be our authentic selves. We were so surprised by how kind of how much our conditioning, you know, still played a role. So when we talk about individuals and structures, there is this beautiful interaction and, and dance and synergy. The structure affects the individual and the individual affects the structure. And what we have learned in Governance Alive is that the more we practice sociocracy and the more we um, acted or, or did what we say, practice what we preached, the more we changed, we transformed, we developed. 
and it wasn't always pretty. I mean, the outcome is, is amazing and wonderful, but it is sometimes difficult to, to cross those constrictions and those, you know, edges of discomfort. So let me stop here and see if John has anything else to add. Yeah, the, the, to be really clear, you don't want to say to people, oh, you have to be vulnerable and, and cooperative in order to do sociocracy. The, the, that's, that's not the request. That doesn't work. It's more, you need to adopt a structure that reinforces that behavior. The structure very much trains you to behave the way is optimal for that structure. And so people find as they operate in a structure that promotes openness and transparency that they become more that way, but they don't have to be that way to begin with. So it's almost like I'm thinking of cognitive behavioral therapy, where the way that you train your behavior then sort of feeds back into the way that you cognitively relate to the situation. So can you say a little bit more about those those behaviors then if if you're not sort of commanding people to be vulnerable how do you um create the structure that promotes that willingness to to step up and step in my first instructor instinct is to say oh there's four basic principles and here they are but that's not kind of like what i i want to do with that i the the um there are a lot of concepts that we're not used to in pact and sociocracy, and so it takes a while to learn them all. One of the things is um, just the simple idea of going around. When you're having a conversation, um, the, the facilitator will say, all right, let's go around on that. And a lot of people are used to like pushing in to get into the conversation or popcorn, and that's a whole different behavior than, oh, I know that I'm going to have my time to speak, whether I'm uh, extroverted or introverted. So something as simple as doing that uh, is important to starting to build that. And it's a, a procedure that you see in a lot of indigenous cultures. They'll even have a talking stick sometimes. It's just like, but we're not trained that way in school. We sit in rows, not in circles. And, you know, you, you, you're raising your hand to get attention or trying to avoid attention or whatever. And so just that simple change is a change in structure. I think this would be a great moment to go a little bit more into the um, the mechanics, the processes of sociocracy for people who are not familiar with that. John, maybe that's where you were going to go with that question anyway. Right. So how did you get that facilitator who's leading you in the round? Well, you e elected or selected that person. Well, how did you do that? Did you do majority vote? No. Um, you uh, found somebody that you consented to. What does that mean? We agree? No, consent is not agreement. Um, what is it? And then, well, it was something that was invented um, by Gerard Endenberg. It literally is a different way of making decisions that completely respects everybody's individuality. Oh, what's that? Okay, and then you're off and looking. And so consent is just one new idea that, that Endenberg introduced. It's actually a very fundamental engineering principle, but and it shows up sometimes, like the Declaration of Independence says, uh, govern governments exist by the consent of the people. It doesn't say by the consensus of the people. It doesn't say by the majority vote. It says by the consent of the people. So it's not totally new. And, and it even consent even shows up in, in Articles 46 and 48 of Robert's Rules of Order, which 
for you, Roz, in the U.S. is like if your Bible of how you do majority vote decision making. And uh, it, it actually shows up there and it's not consensus. But Endenberg took this concept, took added some cybernetic concepts to it and then makes it so that even children can do it. But it's a new, it's something new that you have to learn. And that in itself reinforces respect and equivalence uh, among everybody in a, in a in a gathering or in a meeting. And it helps a lot if they've been trained how to do it. So there's like, there's your first hurdle to jump. You've got to train people in that. I know that when I first started to learn about sociocracy, I realized that consent and consensus have a very specific meaning mm -hmm. in this context yeah. that I that didn't come intuitively to me. So maybe, Monica, could you say a little bit more about what those terms mean in the context of sociocracy and how that actually, what does that look like within a circle? Absolutely. Consent is often um, used uh, synonymously with consensus. Uh, however, sociocratic consent, as, as John mentioned, is, is very different. Consensus, consensus is you are asking people to agree, to say yes. In consent, we are asking people to say that, no, I don't see anything wrong with this proposal. So I'm not looking for your agreement. I'm looking for whether you see anything that doesn't quite sit well with you. And if you don't, then we are moving forward. That's the assumption, forward movement, unless there is what we call a reasoned and paramount objection. So sociocratic consent basically means that the decision is made when you have no reasoned and paramount objection. Just saying no is not an objection. For it to become one, you need to tell us why no, what is it that you see? When you reason what is holding you back, opens up opportunities, windows for movement forward. The paramount part means that even if you reason uh, your no, it also needs to be connected to the aim of the group, to what the group is trying to achieve together. Otherwise, you know, the group can still move forward with your aim, but and your objection is not connected with that movement forward, so it doesn't stop the movement. When people, oftentimes, when, so when people, when it's not an objection, oftentimes it's a personal preference. And so oftentimes objections can be confused for personal preferences. And there's a huge distinction in there. An objection improves a proposal. It helps it move forward in the way that the group wants. A personal preference is simply liking one alternative more than the other. And when people present personal preferences as objections, the group often feels like held hostage by, by that one person. And so using objections that are reasoned and connected to the aim not only ensures equivalence in the group, that everybody has the same chance to have an input in the process, but it also focuses the group into the direction that they want to go. Thanks. That's a great explanation. And I have a follow-up question, but I see that John is dying to say something. Yeah. So, so that is the explanation you get when you translate the Dutch into the English. And 
English actually fails us. That the 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 Dutch word for objection is bitzvar, uh, which means if you translate it literally, which is behavied. And English is saddled with a lot of French words that when you say them have very little emotional content. So objection is like French, it's flat. What we're really saying is that there's no, you don't have a heavy feeling. So it's not only logic-based, it's in fact, more importantly, body-based. And so if you, if, if, if I'm, going around and saying, does anybody have an objection? And somebody says, no, no objection. I say, okay, that's an objection. And I go back to that person and I say, wait a minute. Why was your mouth and your your body disagreeing with each other? What's going on? And that that allows us to connect way down to the base of our, our brain where there's this old lizard back there that actually has maintained control of decision-making despite all this cerebral cortex stuff, it's the lizard that makes the decision. And so you can get to the lizard by going through feelings and and find out, is it really, are you really okay with that? And so the, the a reason and paramount objection is not the same as an overweighing heavy feeling, which is what you get when you directly translate it from Dutch. And so it's really literally a concept that cannot easily be translated into English. It takes a long explanation. Interestingly enough, I have a friend who is teaching uh, this in, in Gujarati, which is one of the languages in India, and he said, hooray, there was no problem. It translates directly into Gujarati, but not into English. So uh, that's, that's, there's, I'm saying that to give you a, a, um, a feeling of some of the subtleties that are behind the concept. Yes, I'm just thinking back to my corporate career and... Um, Certainly people, managers were not on the lookout for discrepancy between <laughs> what's coming out of the mouth and what the body is saying. <laughs> and I do wonder if some, maybe some managers listening to this might be thinking, well, this all sounds very lovely and sort of handholdy and kumbaya, <laughs> but how does anything ever actually get done? It sounds like an awful lot of talking, trying to get everybody on board with this. It's actually much faster. Once, particularly once people get used to it, you just go like that. They, we, I mean, a lot of consent decisions are train people to just check people's eyeballs. Anybody have a problem with this? And if you see the eyeballs, you'll know immediately whether they have an objection. If it's a really heavy decision, you might want to go around, but it's, it, it works fast. And people also are not trying to spend time trying to manipulate like you do if it's the boss is making the decision, you're trying to, you know, cuddle up to the boss or, if, it, if you're trying to win an argument and present logical arguments that are, of course, better than your logical arguments, it, it leads to, and there's some, there's some thought concepts like blind spots and both-end thinking and, and uh, uh, rapid prototyping that are all also behind this. So with those tools, it, 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 a, a relatively simple decision goes really fast. A more complicated one can still go fast. And if it doesn't, then you really needed to spend the time thinking it through. Yeah, that's a, that's a great response. And I'm going to come back to that. Um, but first of all, I want to pick up on something that Monica said in the section in her answer about consent and consensus, which is um, arriving at something that moves the circle forwards. So 
Presumably that means moving the circle or moving the action forwards relative to an overarching strategy or vision that extends across the whole organisation. So if you don't have the sort of top-down control, how is that overall strategy arrived at so that each circle within the organisation knows what it's moving forward relative to, that they're all actually trying to head in the same direction, that forwards to one circle doesn't mean backwards to another circle. How does that work? That is an excellent question. In sociocracy, we use what we call semi-autonomous circles. What And, and if the word circle sometimes is triggering for people, groups, teams, and anything works. Each... Um, circle has an aim and within accomplishing that aim they have full autonomy on who does the work how they do the work when they do the work as long as that aim um, which can be thought of as an offering what the circle offers to its environment to its customers to other areas of the organization as long as that offering is delivered the team or the circle itself decides how they go about delivering it. The semi-autonomous part is that even though, because the group knows what they are about and what they do together, the aim needs to be coordinated with other areas of the organization or um, with the customer. And the offering of one circle adds up with the offerings of other circles into something larger that is organizational. So as long as the aims are coordinated, the teams can work um, quite autonomously in, in delivering what they have consented to offer. Thanks, Monica. Um, so, John, you mentioned the effectiveness that it's, you know, all of this talk is, is not just talk, it really is generating action. And in several places, I've seen it referred to that the sweet spot in sociocracy is when the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts in some way. So um, I wonder if you could say more about that, about why this more collective, collaborative way of working is more effective than the more individualistic way that traditional organizations have tended to use. Mm -hmm. There's again, several levels to that. The, the, a good, good circle meeting will move the organization forward just by building esprit de corps. I, I, I've noticed that the best way to measure whether a, a circle meeting was run well was that the people feel more energized at the end of it than they did the beginning of it. And so if you think of your typical meetings, you're kind of like, oh my God, thank goodness that meeting is over. But the circle meetings actually, people actually look forward to them a lot of times and they're, you end up, you know, feeling like they're fun. And so if you think of all of the effort, the traditional management of an organization spends in trying to motivate people and make them feel, you know, rah, rah, this structure does it for you. So it's, it moves them forward in that way. There are a lot, a lot of concepts, engineering concepts packed into this that we, we look at, like the, the way of structuring work, uh, looking at the input transformation output and the feedback loops you wrap around it happen to be a, 
uh, totally uh, aligned with ISO 9000, which is the international quality standard. Um, it, it's, it's, it even is a better explanation of how the standard works than they provide with the standard. So you, um, you have both a, it's a both and situation. To get things done, typically people will say, all right, we need some sort of, of structure that handles the very abstract work and the less abstract work and the concrete work. People think of that as a hierarchy. The nature of work is hierarchical like that because of the different levels of abstraction. And you, because everybody is completely equivalent, you are also able to say, gee, we need to assign certain people to those different levels. And we need to be able to do something called double linking to be able to pull them back if we want. And we need, to, as my criteria, be able to elect our bosses. And so that means that the organization is both completely flat, everybody's equal, and there's a hierarchy. And when you have that kind of hierarchy, then the resistance to taking orders and the games playing that comes around it tend to go way down. So that you now have an or a structure that people welcome taking direction because they've said we want direction on that matter. And that makes it more efficient. And you've got an organization that is new word agile. We've actually added a lot of agile concepts to when we teach sociocracy, but it's automatically an organization where it's not just the software department, but it's the whole structure that can be agile. So you're much more flexible and every, people are attuned to turning quickly. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds, now growing together in a bioregion near you. SEEDS is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. Welcome back to Sowing the Seeds of Change, where I'm talking with John Burke and Monica Magyeshi from Governance Alive. Um, so you mentioned there double linking and um, earlier you mentioned like, feedback loops and clearly where you've got all these smaller teams, it's important that there is this flow of information around the organization so that the left hand knows what the right hand or the left foot is doing. So Monica, I wonder if you could explain a bit more about how those information flows work in sociocracy. Absolutely. Um, John mentioned the concept of double linking when not only a, a leader, when, when a leader from one area and a representative from the other area attend to two circle meetings to ensure that there is proper flow of information. In sociocracy, People often think that, oh, we switch the hierarchy to the circle and everything will be okay. And sociocracy is a world of both end. We have linear structures in nature and we have circular structures. They each play a role. Where we go wrong, or as humans, where we went wrong with the linear structures is trying to decide the fate of others in linear structures. 
Linear structures are good for progress, movement forward, getting things done, but not for decision making. That's when you need to shift into a circle structure to make decisions. But circle structures are also very slow. So the managers of organizations would be justified in feeling worried about just having a circle structure because the circle uh, promotes decision making equivalent collaboration, but it doesn't promote action. So in sociocracy, we use both structures like a yin and yang. So coordination is happening not only through the double links in the circle structure, but operationally in the linear structure. And this beautiful kind of dance and shift and knowing in which structure we are and for what purpose is the learning curve, the paradigm shift that both individuals and organizations need to go through. And I, I don't want to uh, create a rosy picture of sociocracy here and say that the minute you adopt sociocracy, everything is going to be amazing. The truth is that there is that learning curve. And once you pass that learning curve, that's when everything is going to be amazing. You're going to have a, a rhythm of how you interact, communicate, pass information with people. You will need considerably less meetings because people know what they are doing, what they are showing up for and how. Yeah, that really resonates. Um, I'm doing a lot of work with the seeds currency and we're creating a new organization emerging out of that called Samara that's about three months old now and it's just interesting observing on our journey how we're starting to settle into rhythms and some meetings are more about sensing and some are more about doing and it's taken a while to get that balance of the yin and the yang and there's still a way to go but I can see it starting to emerge now. So talking about those sort of rhythms, do do circles or teams tend to stay stable for quite a long time or is it fruitful to mix them up once in a while? How does that work in terms of allocation of personnel to particular circles? Are they self-organizing or does somebody go, okay, it's time for a change or switch? Um, John, maybe you'd like to take that question. <laughs> it, uh, you'll love this answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> but of course. <laughs> the, uh, we, we've added, brought in lots of techniques uh, There's uh, to, because there's interesting insights everybody has. And uh, stociocracy provides a nice uh, framework to, to add those different techniques in. So, for example, you might want to try using something called uh, organizational open space. Uh, Spotify does that, uh, where uh, whatever great idea you have, if you gather a couple people together, you're, you're off and running with it. You know, they, they encourage that kind of innovation. Um, if you're trying to run you know, a, a factory where you're making parts of some sort, that's much harder to do. And so you may want to have more stability. Um, and so it really much depends upon the nature of the work. I, I don't. I should probably stop there. I could go on on that, but that's the, the short answer. After the the first book I mentioned, I wrote a second one called um, "Company Wide Agility with Beyond Budgeting, Open Space, and Sociocracy." So we've we've there's a lot of really good methods out there that that when combined become even more powerful. Um, if you 
have a an annual budget in your organization, you're probably not an agile organization. You should go find out about the concepts that are in beyond budgeting. And those happen to be really compatible with agile and open space and sociocracy. So there's a, this blend and mix of different methodologies that can be very powerful. And so you'll see some companies using two or three of those. The, the, one of the less known is the sociocracy. Beyond budgeting also tends to be less known than uh, open space and, and agile. And so the, 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 the big thing that you get out of uh, operating uh, with either agile or sociocracy, and particularly sociocracy, is you get a spirit of we never stop developing. We, we, and so it can be that it makes sense to keep somebody in the same circle, but leave it up to them. You know, if they want to change, help them change. Or it can be that you want to have a, a cross-functional team that's pulled together for just one project and then they split and they, they do something else. So it just really depends upon the nature of the work, what your aim is and your vision for what you want. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. So I'd be curious to know, um, in these more self-organizing, flatter organizations, the sticky subject of money and remuneration, because, <laughs> you know, in the old world, it was fairly straightforward. There were strict pay grades and there was a progression and you either got the promotion or you didn't. Where things are more fluid and more egalitarian, is there a sociocratic way of organizing compensation for that? There is. That was one of the things Endenberg said. Mm, we've got to have the 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 way money is paid reflect how people are doing. And it's um, I'm not going to attempt to explain the formula for it because it would take a piece of paper and you know examples and all that kind of stuff. But um, there is a way that the people who invest in the company and the people who are investing their labor can be put on the same, you know, apples to apples comparison. And you come up with a formula for whether it's coagulated labor, like an investor, or it's live labor, like a, a, a you know, a worker. And each, if you're doing well, feels the, feels the measurement of profit or loss. And so right now, um, the only the investors feel the, the, the negative part of, of uh, losing money in the company until, and the workers don't until they get laid off. So bring in measurement and in, in not, you know, huge losses for the workers or huge gains, but bring in that measurement so that everybody gets the, the measurement of the feedback of what's happening with your profit. And it, the, there's, there's some really kind of neat things with it. The, the, there are other groups that have done lots of experimentation, like it's, there are groups now or organizations where everybody gets together and votes on who gets what raise. Um, the, and, uh, that, that, that's come out of like the, the experimentation that comes both out of beyond budgeting as, as well as sociocracy. Um, I know one of the first organizations that I helped get sociocratic in the U.S. is a, a company that makes, uh, manufactures skateboard wheels, uh, creative urethanes. And they survived the, the 2008 recession by, I mean, the, the, the main leader was like ready to, you know, just say, we ought to shut down the company. The general circle, which was the representatives from the whole company, said, no, 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 we can handle this. And so even though they were getting calls every day, 
from customers saying, we're going out of business, cancel our order. They managed to figure out how to do a layoff by consent. And it was the friendliest type of layoff you'll ever see. You know, people were saying things like, you know, you have just had a kid. You need money more than I do. I'll go get unemployment. That's just another resource. And uh, two weeks later, I, I bring in cookies and milk and see how you're doing. And and so it, you get that kind of togetherness to be able to handle the money situation. I think Netflix might have done something similar when they had to, should we say, retrench after 2008. Um so it does seem that for this strange new world that we are moving into, where really the things that worked in the past are not working in the future. Uh, Monica, do you feel like the, that this is the era for, for sociocracy? Do you see it expanding and taking over the world? Absolutely. It's definitely the era for something the interesting place that we are finding ourselves is in transition. And transitions are these kind of liminal spaces where kind of the rules are not clear, anything can happen. We are still in many ways anchored and dependent on the old world. At the same time, we are starting to create this new world. So um, social technologies like sociocracy, agile, open space are, to me, definitely the, the ways to go. And also what I like about sociocracy is that it can apply to the individual level, the team, the organization, but also applies to sociocracy, uh, sorry, to society as a whole. John can tell you more about uh, neighborhoodocracy. Is that it? Or children's parliaments, where, especially in India, we have wonderful examples where neighborhoods have gathered together and children have gathered together and operated in the way where they could overcome amazing, they have, children have addressed amazing things like a child marriage and peers being able to go to schools, building bridges because people couldn't get to school um, when there were floods. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, there's two, two thoughts that occur to me. One is that when you are, uh, speaking of money, it's related to the money thing, but when you're operating sociocratically, one of the things you do is you end up changing your bylaws. Uh, they, maybe it's constitution over there, so that the basis for um, running a company is no longer the golden rule, i.e. he who has the gold makes the rules. Uh, it ends. It, it ends up being consent, which is fairly revolutionary. But the consent is set up so it's not like a a um, uh, a co-op where oh you can't have outside investors. No, there's a way to incorporate investors and and go out and you know raise money through investment with and still operate by consent. So it, getting the investors and the workers on an equivalent basis allows you to do that. The other totally opposite thing is you were talking about all this being new. It's actually, in some ways, what we're talking about is not new. The idea of electing your boss was in the U.S. was commonplace until the 1850s. Men used to elect the officers in the army. That was the frontier way of doing it. And that disappeared with the Civil War and the, the rise of uh, corporations and all that that were based on on, on the golden rule. Um, but that's that's the 
the the authentic U.S. way of doing things is let's elect our leaders. And so we're trying to, in some sense, to bring that back. Um, so is there any limits to the power of sociocracy? Uh, I remember reading a book by Alan Watkins called Crowdocracy, which was how democracy could be redesigned on similar principles. Yeah, th- there are a lot of... of um self-organizing tools that people have, have, are experimenting with, and they're great. There's lots to be said for all that. The It, it was interesting, Monica mentioned India. Uh, both Endenberg and a guy by the name of, um, um, of Father Edwin John in India ended up with the same idea for how to govern society, and it's from the bottom up. And they, they drew diagrams that are totally independent of each other and nearly identical. And with that concept, you can have decentralized decision-making, but you federate up the levels of abstraction so that you uh, uh, work from the bottom up. Gandhi has a nice quote that says, the, the democracy shouldn't be by 20 people in the middle of the organization. Uh, it should be uh, from the village level up. And so the problem with the self-organizing large masses is you don't get that flexible structure that can actually handle whatever the, the, the conditions are at whatever level of abstraction you're looking at. So the um, um, both Endenberg and um, uh, Edwin John say you should start uh, for organizing society at the very base neighborhood level. And that doesn't mean like 50 or 100 houses. It means maximum 30 families. And they get together and they make decisions together. And the the I'm writing a book right now called Governance from Below, Can Children Lead the Way? It's about how actually we should be training children to do this because they get it a lot quicker than adults do. And uh, so then you have 30, 30 families or 30 children's parliaments. Then they all elect representatives to a next level children's parliament. And then you get 30 of those and you elect the next level um, and, and so forth up so that you, you literally can, at least in theory, build a whole society, a whole planet going from bottom up. India, at one point, the, uh, in the children's parliament system there, they had elected a child prime minister of India through this federated system. And she's you know, spoken at the UN and, and uh, managed to get a few uh, UN directives to India changed and some other things, but uh, when she was 16 or 17. Um, and so that seems to me to hold more promise than the trying to organize large self-organizing systems. And it's still decentralized in that the power when you're doing that it rests in the bottom of the organization. And you have you, you can have things like immediate recall. We don't like our representative pulling back. It's easy to do if you've got 30 people. You don't have to go out and have a big election every five years. So it's a much more, it's a system where the, the people in the decentralized mode can make their voices heard at the necessary level of abstraction. So speaking of, of visions and like these really much more inclusive systems of governance, like the diversity of ages and maybe even socioeconomic groups and the fact that the uh, the children's elected representative was a girl, fantastic. Um, it's really exciting to see. I'd love to hear about, uh, Monica, about your 
your vision for the future of sociocracy when you look five or 10 or maybe 20 years ahead from where we are now? What is it that is, is in your mind's eye when you dream of the future? There, there is a, um, uh, Bruce Lipton is a, is a cell biologist and he came up with this concept of, of fractal evolution of how organisms kind of start as individuals, then they form communities until the community learns how to function as one unit. They build a membrane around it. Like for example, bacteria builds biofilm. And then when many of these communities come together, form a higher level organism, um, which becomes again, communities able, many communities able to function as a single unit. And that's, that's an amoeba. So if we look at humanity and humans, I feel that we are pretty much completed the evolution of the human being. We've been experimenting with communities like families, tribes, villages, kingdoms, countries, more and more we are becoming globalized. So what I see is for us to be able to um, function together, coexist, think, decide, sense, feel together as, as one humanity that is synchronized with our resources and with the earth that we live in. The beautiful thing about consent decision-making is that you can make consent decisions with your car, which means you can make consent decisions with your planet. For example, when you're driving along the road, your aim is to get, let's say, to the grocery store with your car, and you see the oil light flashing. That is your car's objection to moving forward, because if you ignore that you're low on oil, the car is going to break down, you're not going to get to the grocery store after a while. So we can ignore the flashing oil light and we will pay the price and in similar ways with our earth. We can continue ignoring the signs and we will definitely pay the price and we can learn to pay attention to the signs and build that feedback into the decisions that we make. So it's like our present challenges are actually uh, a call to the next stage of evolution, that we're going to have to tap into that collective intelligence and really cooperate together if we're going to, if we're going to make it out of this alive. Absolutely. Capitalize on our diversity, capitalize on our wisdom and include not only us, but other living forms in our environment in, in how we move forward. Mm, brings a whole new connotation to governance alive, really. Yeah, a really living um, collective governance. Thank you, Monica. That really resonates with me. That's a, a beautiful vision and it, it, it feels like that's where we're going or certainly where we need to go. John, how does that how does that land with you? Yeah, the the um, I see the 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 this, this sociocratic technology meshing nicely with the flattening of the whole planet that's happened from social technology. The fact that we're talking on either side of the ocean and seeing each other is just in the beginning, in some ways. Um, and there's organizations that are taking advantage of that 
now. Uh, just before we got on the call, we uh, got a I got word that Charles Hodgkins, who's the president of Cardano Blockchain, has announced that we'll be working with them. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to uh, have the blockchain community, Cardano Blockchain community, govern itself, and uh, so blockchain is has the potential for creating horizontal nations. They cut across borders. And so how do you organize horizontally? How do you organize across nations? And um, there's a potential there for that. Uh, you mentioned crowdocracy. That's kind of feeling toward the same direction. Um, and I think that we may um, be developing a fundamental new way of, of uh, between with all this, not just with sociocracy, but all the things that are going on we may be developing a fundamental new way of, of organizing ourselves and, and governing the planet, uh, which would be lovely because it might do what Seeds is also trying to do, which is like, let's get together and see if we can care for the planet. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, about re-engineering the, not just even the incentives, but really the the whole way of, of being and as as you were talking there about blockchain being cross border, it was making me think of the astronauts' overview effect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these people who've been into space and look back at the Earth, and you don't see lines separating one country from another. Mm-hmm. And it does seem, you know, if I was an alien landing on this planet and looking at the the battles that go on over these fictional lines on a map, I'd probably think that the human race was not quite the Homo sapiens, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the wise man that it claims to be. <laughs> that that might seem just a little bit on the arrogant side. Um, so, John, you mentioned that there are also these other convergent um, technologies, maybe social and otherwise. Could you just throw a few of those into the conversation? The one of the emergent things is artificial intelligence. It, it it's not clear where we're going. We've had warnings from Stephen, people like Stephen Hawking saying, "Look out! You know, here comes the end of humanity as the as the robots take over." I think that's probably not so. I do think that that we're more and more going to be a compound being that's partly mechanical and partly uh, human. That's like the next step in evolution. So that's a really big, broad thing. The biology, um, I have a, a son who's a, a virologist at the Institute of Human Health, and he says that it's now feasible, given enough money, to cure death. What would that mean? So there's these big things that are happening. The oil lights are flashing. We've got to get off of oil. So there's these huge planetary-wide things that we don't know where where we're going. Um, and... Uh, in terms of just governance themselves, um, there's the, um, the 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 internet uh, itself. It, we saw even in, like with the recent uh, move that we took the former president of the U.S. off of Twitter. Uh, it's like, wait a minute, who's in charge here? Uh, there's, there's there's shifting power shifting happening all over the place. Um, I said my four favorite new technologies are, are agile, beyond budgeting, open space, and and uh, sociocracy. But there's a lot of other wonderful methodologies that are running around theory U and dragon dreaming and and all these sorts of things. The Semenko down in uh, 
South America has come up with some wonderful ways of governing. And um, it's all about different ways of connecting. You can make the analogy with a brain. And uh, my favorite animal for that is the octopus because it's a multi-brain uh, entity that has, you know, a it has a multi-brain mind. I think we're kind of heading there, but it's not clear how it'll all come out. And, and it's a time of great experimentation that we should all be having fun with. Yep. <laughs> if we can't have some fun along the way, then what's it all about, really? Yeah. Um, it does make me think of something that I um, often say about courage, that you you don't find courage by sitting on your sofa waiting for it to show up. No. Um, it's something that only emerges when it's required. And it does feel like these technologies and especially the social technologies that are emerging are arising as a as an emergent property of the current state of the world that they are now required so i'm full of curiosity for the future and, and where that's going to go and it does feel like these sociocratic principles this collective intelligence the whole becoming greater than the sum of the parts is um is where it needs to go. So thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, John, um, <laughs> Monica, where can people find out more about the work of Governance Alive and sociocracy in general? Um, people are welcome to uh, connect to our resources that are available at www.governancealive.com. Um, we have free materials as well as training opportunities for people to get a better understanding of what it means to do embodied sociocracy and what it means to look at biomimicry in how we govern ourselves. Love it. Uh, we could probably have another whole conversation about biomimicry and what a constant inspiration Mother Nature is. Um, but for now, I just really love to thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today and all power to you going forwards. Thank you. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you. It has been a pleasure, Roz. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I feel so encouraged that there are these powerful social technologies that can really help people to thrive in their work. I absolutely believe that we need all hands on deck if we're going to ride these waves of change. And sociocracy can make sure we're all crew, no passengers, while creating more resilient, robust organisations better suited to the uncharted waters ahead.